Um, so I'm reminded what, what uh, John was saying a minute ago, which is excellent, and a great reminder. So I thought I'll take a second and build on that. Actually, the way I uh, wanted, there's like two main ways that I like to teach the gospel um, as that message, and one is through donuts, but the other one is, um, the other one is, um, is actually through a class. I was raised by educators, and so I grew up around professors and teachers, and I was in classes before I was supposed to be in classes, and and so uh, um, here's, here's what struck me. So um, let me, uh, John, what's a, what's, a, um, what's a class you've always wanted to take, a subject you've always wanted to study? Just anything. Geology. geology. Perfect. Okay, so, so John's always wanted to study geology. So let's say John decides to, to go over to UT Tyler or TJC in his free time and take a geology class, Okay. So, so John doesn't, doesn't need the education for his career or anything like that. He just, this is a, a subject that's always fascinated him is geology. So he decides to go take this class. And so the teacher walks in day one. And John, who's your favorite teacher you've ever had your whole life, no matter what grade? No holds barred. You have my dad as a professor? I'd forgotten that. You don't have to say that if he wasn't really your... <laughs> He's a good professor, but he may not have been your favorite. That's okay. That wouldn't have hurt my feelings, so... We'll go ahead. Dr. Legg, so uh, my dad, um, who's a forestry professor, who, by the way, who was undergraduate in geology, and really part of him probably wishes he had stayed with geology, although he loves forestry, but um, he, uh, so you go into this class at TJC, and, or, or, or UT Tyler, and the professor is Dr. Legg. You go in, and it's my dad, Mike Legg, and, and he gets up and says, I'm fascinated by this subject, but you need to know something, guys. You need to know, this class is unbelievably hard. Like, there will be every form of testing and homework you can imagine. There will be quizzes and pop quizzes and tests and papers and research and, and you name it. And, and you're, it is so hard. I don't curve anything. I mean, you got this class. No one's ever passed it before. Like, no one's ever passed this class ever. And, and all of people taking my geology class, no one's ever passed it. So here's what I've decided to do is, is I'm going to go down the roll and I'm going to call roll today. And if you answer here or present or yo or whatever, if you're here, the way I'm going to mark you present today is by giving you a 100 in the final grade column in pen. So when you say here, I'm going to mark you present today with a 100 as your final grade for this class. You've aced the class by being here today. Okay? So with that in mind... So he goes down the roll, he gets to John Breedlove, John says, here, he goes, great, 100, final grade, in ink. Now, what would motivate you to then write papers, read books, take the tests, study? What would possibly motivate you to do that? Okay, one is you, the subject, right? You love the subject. The subject is fascinating to you. You love the material. Okay, good, that's one. What else? Okay, you love the teacher, right? This is your favorite teacher you've ever had. This guy's, you, you want to honor him by working hard in his class and knowing you're going to get a 40 on the first grade, and even, but remembering your final grade's a 100. What grades you make between here and the last class is irrelevant to your final grade. That's grace. Grace is what you do between here and the end is irrelevant in regards to your final grade. It's a free, that's what free gift means. That's what Grace means free gift. So if you've been raised in a version of Christianity that says, yeah, God's let you in the class, but now you've got to bust it in order to have a chance at passing the class, let me just tell you, you're out of luck. Our version of righteousness is offensive to God. 
Our version of trying to do good because we're good is offensive because it's a lie. And it's offensive to him because it implies that we could have somehow done this on our own. He's going to be offended if we think we're earning that final grade. That's offensive. But he's given us this final 100. So one is the love of the teacher. One is the love of the material. And there's actually one other one. What else might motivate you? Okay, so love, kind of a, a gratitude, a graciousness. Maybe that would go with kind of the love of the both of them, but either one of those. But yeah, he gave us a 100. Right? Good? Okay, respect. Yes. How about the love of yourself? Right? This, is a, this would be good for me, right? This is a good thing for me. And I've got a 100. What were you going to say? What were you saying, Norman? I said you need the knowledge. Okay, you want this knowledge. It might help you in life, right? Excellent. So these are all things that motivate you. Notice what, so the love of the teacher, the love of the information, the love of yourself, the love of your future, the desire to invest. What isn't motivating you? Which motivates you in most classes? Fear. <laughs> Guilt. Ask yourself, if you look back on school, now, we, we have to have grades in school. I'm not, I'm not you know, <laughs> coming at some kind of every, every... In schooling in America, in this world, with the, the whole everybody gets a trophy thing falls apart on us. But in regards to God's grace, the fact that all we have to do is join the class to get a final grade of 100 is a brilliant thing. But I will tell you, there have been lots of times in, in schooling that I think if I'd already known what my final grade was, my papers would have been a lot better because I could have just cut loose. Said what, I said, said what I wanted to say, felt what I wanted to feel, put that down in the papers. Certainly the professor would have gotten to know me a lot better. I'd have taken big risks, wouldn't I? If you know your final grades are 100, you can risk. But when you don't know, you can't risk. This is, this is a presentation of the gospel. God has already aced the test, as John said a second ago. He's aced it for us. He has given us a final grade of 100. It's a done deal. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. There is no more work to be done in regards to this. It's, it's a, such a beautiful picture. That's why we go to this God and pray, as we talked about last week. That's why we go to him and ask him for wisdom. This is a God who loves to give good gifts and has already given us the greatest gift that we can possibly ever wrap our brains around. So we want to ask him for wisdom. And I want to talk a second about the supernatural form of wisdom here. We ask God for wisdom. We have to be careful because he may give you insight that doesn't make a lot of sense. In the moment, it may not make sense. One of the things we're going to do in a couple of weeks, and so I grew up with this. I grew up with this sense of this, this very humble, that the church that I was in that I complain about sometimes that I grew up in had one thing very strongly going for it. And that was this humble sense of praying and asking God to lead them. This church had, I mean, maybe it was a church about this size as far as the number of chairs but I was a kid. You know, I could go back and it may be a tiny thing. But, but a church, a lot, a lot of, but, but, you know, what we have in maybe, uh, in the first service, and maybe one little section was all spread out among the whole church, which was one of the issues I always had as a kid was like, why are we so spread out? I mean, it was like, this was my pew. There's only two of us sitting on the pew, but this was my, it was, it was really kind of odd. Like, they didn't really like each other very much. It was always odd to me, but as a kid. But here was an amazing thing. You're talking maybe 100 people, maybe, on a good Sunday, probably somewhat less. And every year they gave over $100,000 to missions. And we didn't have any of these high, it wasn't like everyone gave 10,000 and one guy gave 90,000. It wasn't like that. It, there was, there were, it was mostly kind of farmers and, and landowners and that kind of stuff. It was mostly who was in this church. 
Every year, here's how they did it. And so I grew up on this. So this was, this was a major impact on my faith as a child was that they would have this prayer time like we're doing now. So we're going to have a Sunday like this. And, and in so many churches, this is done so badly and the heart is so wrong with it. And so I, I get, again, I've talked before, like, you know, capital campaign slash root canal, they kind of get filed together. But it's easy to do that. But here's what I grew up with was every year them saying, we're going to give to missions or we're going to give to this or we're going to create this thing. And then what they would do is they would pray for three or four weeks and then they would write pledges. And the pledges were 100%. Here's what was told from the, from the stage. The pledges were 100% what you think God is telling you. And so if it makes no sense, and God tells you a number that makes no sense, you write it down. They actually recommended you test it. As in like spouses prayed separately and wrote down numbers and only went with the number if they agreed on the number. And if they didn't, they'd stop and pray some more until they came like... Because they wanted this to be a God thing. It was really amazing to watch. And, and so I grew up on stories. And then what they would do is, is they would, at the end of the year, and by the way, it would be a lot of times people would give us, they have no idea where this number came from. But we, we got this number, this is what we're going with. And I grew up on watching this. As a kid, these people do this. And they would get up. And sometimes even testimonially would say like, uh, we don't know what God's telling us to do, but we went with this number because we thought that's what God had. And so... And I watched as a kid these miracles happen. I mean, and that affects you when you're a kid. These miracles happen when families would say, we don't. So but the one of that stands out to me hugely, and I probably told this story like three or four years ago when we're getting ready to build the youth building, but that stood out to me hugely was these, this family who got up, and they were really relatively poor farmers. And the, and the guy said, um, he got up afterwards and said, so I, 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 and I don't even remember what the number was because Keep, please keep in mind, in God's kingdom, the number is always irrelevant. Um, it could not be less relevant. As John said, obedience and faithfulness is what we talk about. And so I, but I, again, grew up with this guy. So he gets up, and, I, I, and rightly so, I have no memory of the number. What I remember was it was a number that, especially as a child, I, I kind of had no imagination for. <laughs> like anything bigger than a few hundred dollars, children are like, but I could buy all the toys with that, right? So my parents won't let me have $2 to buy that. And yet this was... So, um, and so I grew up with this guy. And so I remember this guy getting up afterwards, everything in tears, tough farmer dude, tough. He was actually my Sunday school teacher. And uh, one of his famous stayings he would say all the time was like, I know I'm not going to get far in heaven, but as long as I don't care if I'm digging ditches as long as I'm in heaven. That was kind of his motto. But, um, but he, he um, so he, he gets up and says, um, well, I, my wife and I wrote down this number that made no sense to us. We could never, ever, 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 ever have gotten that far ahead. And he goes, and during the year, one of our farm implements, one of our big tractor things, I don't even remember what it was, broke. And we were going to have to replace it. And we had no, really no hope of replacing it. So we decided to sell the old broken one and see what that got us so we could buy the new one. And at the end of that exchange of selling the old broken one, the price for the new one was exactly cheaper than the old broken one, the amount they had pledged. And he stood up and said, like, we, I don't remember the number. Again, I saw, we, we sold the old broken one for this much, and then we bought the new one. The difference between those two was is exactly what God had told us, we felt like God had told us to pledge. Now, I'm not, I'm not I'm no, listen, you know, I'm no health and wealth type of theology teacher at all. But, but they stepped down in faith. And as a kid, here's what's wild. Here I am 40 years later telling you that story. It impacted my faith as a kid that much. And so I encourage you, the reason we're praying for these 21 days isn't because that's some gimmick we do to check off the list. That's not the idea here. 
The idea is that those of us who are members of this church and want to invest in that need to be praying because God is the one who has supernatural wisdom. God is the one who has us to give, and so that's what we're asking for. And so I grew up on this, this humble version of prayer. Look at this. So finishing up what we had last time, I try to always connect to something last time. We talked about prayer and the prayer for wisdom in particular, the Pharisee, the tax collector. So after the parable of the unrighteous judge, those of you here last week will remember. If you don't and you want to go hear it, by the way, they're online. We don't yet, we'll be probably another three or four weeks before we have a, uh, South Spring has its own website, so fbctyler.com. Com or org, dot org, I think dot org, um, is our church, is still the South Campus, is still the website we're using for now. So, but if you go to the media there, the sermons and stuff like that are all there. The Wednesday night talks, all of it, it's all there. Here's what, here's what Jesus teaches. So then he told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. So again, Luke is telling us what the purpose of this one is. Two men went in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus proclaiming a truth here. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the type of prayer, the mindset of prayer that we want to have. That we come before him empty, realizing. Some of you remember that worship, the word for worship there, the Greek word includes uh, the root word of hand and the root word of dog. Um, And so... Almost certainly what they're referencing is the way a dog comes to his master's hands. That's what worship is. If we think we're coming to give God something he needs, we're wrong. If we think we're coming because God has something for us, and so we want to find out what that is, and so we sing and we pray and we worship and we sing, and and, and I said sing, and we listen and we learn and we give and all that kind of stuff, it's just like that. the dog that I used that with a few years ago, the dog I have now would never fulfill this little thing well. Um, Trooper's not that kind of dog, those of you who've met him. But Molly, when she was alive, she was the one who I used like four years ago, that when Pike and I were up here on the stage and we taught on this, and we had her in the back of the room, and I said, I just said, Molly, come, and she ran forward, and I held out my hands like this, and she one after the other stuck her nose in this hand, and then stuck her nose in that hand to see if I had anything for her. That's worship. Let us come humbly and honestly to God, recognizing the good gift of letting us be involved. Um... So often our arrogant and self-confident understandings of how things should be done, of how we are better than, looking across the bridge of our nose, arms crossed, at least in our souls. Are we coming to church to pray or to judge or to join? Do we think we know? Let us humble ourselves and ask God what we should do with his resources. Our prayer is that God would continue gifting us with the courage not be ashamed of the gospel. Um, to make us into ministers who will go forth and make disciples. That he will continue to gift us with children and families who are looking to be served and helped and loved in Jesus' name. We pray that God will keep gifting us with unity in his spirit to stand firm with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We ask that God would keep gifting us with teachers and disciple makers who enthusiastically engage with kids and their families. And we do ask God to keep gifting us with the finances to take care of what he's called us to, 
and now specifically to construct space where this stuff can happen. Um, there's a character from history, an interesting person, and a lot, of, a lot that's built around him is legend, so it's hard to know exactly, but some of you may have heard of or read about a guy named Brother Lawrence. Um, we have a picture, I think, of Brother Lawrence. So Brother Lawrence was a monk who was called the minister to the, he called himself the minister to the ministers of God. Um, he did not think he was worthy to actually minister to normal people. All he could do was minister to the ministers. And so pictures of him often show him doing dishes, and which apparently was one of his big jobs in the monastery, was doing dishes or preparing food or, or that kind of stuff. Um, have you seen Nacho Libre? Kind of, kind of like that. So um, apparently not many, but that's okay. Uh, he's the one who prepared the food and that kind of stuff. So here's what's fascinating. So Brother Lawrence lived out this life that he called practicing the presence of God. Or he tried to teach himself how to live in the presence of God. And that's the name of the book that's now out about him, Practicing the Presence of God. He says at one point that if he was a preacher, which he was not, that what he would spend his time doing is teaching his people how to practice the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God to him meant learning how to ask at first each day, God, how shall I live this day? And then twice a day, how shall I live this half day? And then four times a day, and then six times a day, and then eight times a day, how shall I live this hour? And then how shall I live this half hour? And how shall I live these next 15 minutes? And you watch his journals, he wrote in journals, and you can see his journals as they over time get to where he is asking moment by moment, how shall I live this moment? How shall I live this moment? How shall I live this moment of God? It's God's moment, not mine. And this was his mindset. Here's what's wild. The only reason we have any journals, anything writing, because he refused, he believed that he had nothing to teach. And so one of the fellow monks tricked him into writing stuff down, promising him he would never publish it, that no one would ever see it. Literally, apparently, we'll see when we get to heaven if this part is legend or not, apparently just kind of bald-faced lied to Brother Lawrence for the rest of our sake. That when Brother Lawrence died, he immediately gathered all these journals up and then began publishing them. And one of the amazing things, Brother Lawrence, so apparently one of the amazing things, if you could imagine, guys, that we have a spirit that is there to guide us and lead us day to day, moment to moment, and maybe has an opinion on even small things in our lives because the spirit knows where he's leading us. This is an amazing picture. When I read the book of Acts, I'm not stunned by the miracles. I mean, that would be cool, you know, if people would, you know, when our shadow fell across them, they would be healed. That, that would be cool. What I'm stunned by is how regularly they cite God's Holy Spirit as a source. God told us, quote, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the Gentile. Like, quote, they put quotes around the Holy Spirit's words. I'm not that gutsy. I can't imagine being that sure of what the God, God was teaching me. So we have to step out in faith doing our best. But Brother Lawrence, literally, if you guys could imagine, one of the legends about him is that he did all of the shopping for the monastery. Now, here's what you don't know about Brother Lawrence. He, we, what to, he had to what today we would call a learning disability. He could not understand numbers at all. Like, at all. He couldn't understand money at all. And yet, he's who they sent into the village to shop. So they would, he, they would hand him a bag full of money and send him into the, the town to shop. And according to legend, he would go and ask the spirit which store to go to, what to ask for, and which coins to give them. And so, that, that's because he, he didn't understand what coins he was giving. He didn't understand the, the numbers, the, the, all, what any of that meant. And the reason they sent him shopping is because he, without fail, got the best deals for the best food. 
Again, if that doesn't blow your mind a little bit, the thought that maybe we have a spirit who would be willing to lead us moment by moment and even little things like that, certainly at minimum we should be praying to him to lead us in where our church should be and go and where our families should be and go. Now, I would love to tell you that I've aced this, that I've mastered this, but I have not. Probably like you have gone through phases where I've done a better job or a worse job, but this, this is, such a, this is an, a, a, such a challenge to all of us that we could maybe live out the way those first century people did. In his famous prayer, Jesus uses the phrase, your kingdom, or if you memorize it like I did, thy kingdom come. Today we're supposed to talk a little bit about the mission of the church, and that phrase is a big part of what the mission of the church is. That we are living in and of his kingdom. That means led by his spirit. So one of the things Jesus loved to do was teach parables and say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would do the parable. And so we have to figure out what it is that the kingdom of heaven, how it's like that parable. And so we get some weird ones, but we get some pretty obvious ones. So here's numerous of the kingdom of heaven parables, and I'm going to focus on one. One, so a parable, for those of you who didn't grow up in church or whatever, a parable is just a story. It's, it's something that comes alongside the truth. It is saying, here, here is, you know, like, to, to para means alongside. And so that we would, this is a story that's meant to teach us something. It's, it's a tale. It's founded in reality, even though the specific narrative is, is a story. So this, this thing's happened probably, but that's not the whole thing here. Like, Jesus is telling a story, like about the prodigal son is one of the most famous ones, or the good Samaritan is a famous one. He told these stories, as it turns out, he explains he told these stories actually to be confusing. That seems odd to us. But because the people who were listening to him, he did not really want them to fully grasp what he was teaching until after the Spirit had come. Oh, by the way, do you have that quote, that Brother Lawrence quote? It's a great, um, look at that. The most holy and important practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. That is every moment to take great pleasure that God is with you. Again, if you think of it like John was saying as, as a, a math test, um, if Vincent is in the second hour, you'll have to use that one again. Vin, Vincent loves nothing more than a math test. He's getting his master's in math. Any other, any other like postgraduate math people? That's just weird to me. That's amazing. I, I'm, I'm like John. I'm like, yeah, that's I still a foreign language. I need somebody to teach me algebra. That's the class I need to take. I never learned it. Um, so here's some examples. Um, Jesus taught a parable about wheats and tares. So wheats and tares in Israel grow side by side, and except for during harvest, they're almost indistinguishable. Um, last time I was in Israel, I got some, but they've, they've now kind of dried out, and, and they wouldn't make it if I passed them around. I'd love to, but they look almost identical. It's really amazing. We spread, we cultivate, we tend, but we do not reap. We are incompetent to decide who is worthy of the gospel or who is worthy of salvation. When the harvesting is over, then the sorting happens. That's the, the purpose of that parable. Another one, a parable, the kingdom of heaven parable, is a treasure found in a field where none is known to exist. That's another one. Our master is a treasure finder, and one who sees treasure where others see something common. We see treasure in you where maybe no one else has because he has. Because our master teaches us that the world is that way. There is treasure that the world misses. I'll teach about that again sometime. The kingdom of heaven is like a priceless pearl that was purchased at the expense of everything else. Another one of his parables. Jesus pays everything to get that which he treasures. He has paid it all. 
And we learn to forsake everything in order to be his disciples. Another one, a net is dragged through the sea and gathers fish of every kind. This is one um, I hope at some point, if not on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night soon, to teach through the theology of race. This is a great example of Jesus' teaching on ethnic diversity. Um, we have such a habit of misunderstanding or, or sometimes intentionally misunderstanding what the gospel, the Bible teaches about this. But the truth is, his is a net that drags through the sea and it catches all kinds of fish. All kinds. After the catching is done is when the sorting happens. Anytime. So let's just, let's just stop and have a teachable moment here. Anytime we find ourselves as Christians in the act of sorting who is God's favorite? Who is God's best? Who really deserves? Who gets to go to heaven? Who is really? Anytime we find ourselves sorting at the judgment level, we are crossing the line. We don't have that authority. We are called to call out sin in the life of other believers. That's not sorting. That's calling out behavior. That's call, we're, we're called to do that. But when we start sorting people into Christians or non-Christians, or these are the ones who are really going to heaven versus the ones who really aren't, that kind of stuff, we don't have that authority. We are to assume those who don't overtly proclaim Christ, we're to assume they need to know him. To those who openly proclaim Christ but then live as though they don't, we are to openly confront as brothers and sisters in love. But us deciding, we are radically incompetent for it. This is another good example of that. Um, a teacher in his kingdom is like a homeowner who brings out treasure of new things and old things. In God's kingdom, teachers bring new things and old things. His mission is embodied in that prayer, God's kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. This is an ongoing mission that we get to be a part of. He started with his people. He made new his incarnation. Incarnation means the son, his son coming to live with us. So here's the parable, though, that I believe is a great picture of the mission of the local church. The capital T, capital C, church, and thus the local church, our church. Here is what I think this parable expresses our mission. It's up on the screen. Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He's put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of the mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. What is leaven? Yeast. It's just yeast, right? That's all it is. Any, any bread makers in the room? Any of you guys ever done that? Even at least the friendship bread or something like that? What have you got to do? You take that dough and what have you got to, what have you got to make sure in order for the bread to, to become bread, what do you got to do? You got to get that yeast into it, right? K-N-E-A-D, need, to knead it in. To get it all in there so it gets all over the place. Let me show you. So we have a picture of a mustard seed. <clears throat> this is one of those funny things that always cracks me up. There's a, some of the neo-atheists love to point out that technically the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on the planet. Because clearly that was Jesus' point here, was he was teaching that the mustard seed is the smallest seed on all the planet. Um, it is the smallest seed that grows, that the people see and would be aware of naturally in Israel for sure. But the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. That, some people say, and there's different views on this, that what Jesus is saying is actually that 
when you crush a mustard seed, it has multiple grains inside of it. So that even that, that may not be what Jesus is referencing. Jesus is referencing the little bitty grains inside of that. Regardless, you get the point, right? It's very small. We're all on the same page. It's small. Good. Um, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it's grown larger than the garden plant. So an individual seed grows into a plant that looks like this. Sorry, that's not a better, there's not a better picture of that. But that's, that's a full-grown mustard seed. Okay? That's actually a man in Israel holding it. So that you can see, they get big. In fact, if you think of the things that grow in a garden, which is what Jesus says, of the garden plants, not many things in a garden grow that tall. Not of their own uh, under their own strength. But here's what's wild. It produces lots of other seeds, and others begin to grow. And so eventually what you end up with, go ahead, is this. So that's a whole bunch of mustard plants growing clumped together, and it produces that. That's a, that's a mustard tree. Now, it's not technically a tree. It's still a bush, but it's a whole bunch of those grown entangled, and when it does that, it grows out like that. And you can imagine... Especially look at the area around this Bedouin. If you were a bird and you had to choose a place to build a nest, so look at the environment around him in the background. Pretty much goes on forever and ever as solid rock. You would stop here. And that's the picture that Jesus uses. It eventually becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It grows it starts very small. It spreads out from something small. That is not only each of us, but it is all of us. At the individual level, there came a time when someone planted a seed in you. And the Holy Spirit worked on that. And that seed grew in you. And there came a point at which that seed, hopefully, we'll talk in a couple of weeks about another parable about seeds, but hopefully that seed took root and it grew and it was nourished and it was nurtured and it continued to grow and it became big and bigger and bigger. The church, capital T, capital C, the church started about 2,000 years ago with one person. It was his church. He proclaimed it such. And he proclaimed that the gates of hell would not stand against it. My church, he called it. Then he added like 12 people to it. One of them... Not so helpful. Then there were 70. Then there were hundreds. Then there were thousands. Today, one in about every three people in the world claims to be a Christian. Now, I'm under no illusion that everyone is, but about one in every three people in the world claims to be a Christian. Some of them probably don't know who Jesus Christ is, but they claim it. First Baptist Church started, as that video said, for example, in Tyler. Second church, or first they fight over it. One of the first two churches founded, it was either the Methodist church or the Baptist church first, at about the same time were founded. Um, but the Methodists had a building first, so the Baptists met in the Methodist building for part of their early times. By the way, the part of where we get the name now, we embrace the fact, part of why we ended up being excited about the, the idea of spring is because there was a spring downtown. That's what South Spring Street is, is where that spring was. Springs are important. I, as, a, as kind of a hobby, I'm into post-apocalyptic literature, and I like thinking about it and, and reading it and that kind of stuff. And I will tell you, when you live in a non... I'm not talking about... Well, I mean, yes, okay, sometimes like zombies and stuff, but that's not really my mind. I mean like, I mean like the more reality-based type stuff. But I tell you what, you really quickly can imagine why a town springs up where there is a spring. 
which is exactly a big part of why downtown Tyler is where it was, is because there was a spring there. Because that gives the opportunity for life. We kind of require water pretty quickly as a species. Eight people in 1848, now dozens of churches around East Texas and around the world because of one church that started with eight people. This campus, about 16 years ago-ish, started with just a few families. That's, that's how the kingdom of heaven happens. Is it starts small, and then it grows, and it becomes healthier, hopefully, and it becomes greater, and it becomes sometimes even bigger, and then as it grows, more people find home there. They find shelter there. Who finds comfort in home here? Who nests in the branches here? We've gone out of our way to try to make sure that foster and adoption families find a place to nest here. We work hard at that. And hopefully that will continue to happen more and more. People who are, have chronically ill are special needs kids. Those are people we focused on. We want to make sure they know they have a home here. There's a nest here for them. Even, even though it's hard to do that. Um, people abused or disenchanted with church. We've talked about before. That's one of the things that I loved um, uh, I loved the Keelings in, the, in last week's video that we looked at, John Keeling saying, can I say this on mic? We were never going back to another Baptist church. Now, that's, that's, not, that's not a diss on Baptists. It's a diss on what sometimes Baptist churches become. Any church can become that, by the way. I've seen it in every denomination. But that we would say, this is a place where people can come and find Christ. Hopefully, and real life version of that. If you grew up, as so many of us did, with the wrong expressions, the wrong aspects of the Sunday best mindset, the idea that we needed to encourage fake and a false front expression of our faith, that was encouraged in so many of our childhoods, wasn't it? It strikes me, this is what struck me as I was writing this, as if our God of truth would be honored by treating our families with a lack of gentleness so that people would get the idea that the facade of our family was what was real about it. How could that ever have honored God? I don't, I just, I just boggle. My mind boggles at the idea of, of dads screaming at their children on the way to church so that the child would act right in front of other people at church. God forgive us. Um, maybe, maybe for people who are really hurting, um, in, probably in three weeks, so when we're done with the city on a hill, so two more weeks discussing this, and then we'll have a commitment Sunday. I think it's March 5th. And the next week I've decided I'm going to do a one-off sermon because I'm going to start on prophecy, a conversational prophecy for about a month there. And I'm going to do a one-off. And what I'm going to teach is the biblical perspective on suicide. Um, as we've seen it in our, in our culture, in our community so much over the last few months, um, I think it's a good idea for our church to have a correct biblical picture of that. How did the gospel build and grow? Probably one person inviting you. Or someone else in your family. They invited your dad or your granddad or your mom. They invited somebody, one person, and it began to grow. Hopefully it grew up in your family. If your family, is, if your family doesn't know Jesus, then we will keep praying with you that that will come into being, that the, the mustard tree will grow such that they can find that. Is our life leavened? Is it keep getting filled up? All of us. We're never done with this, but are, do we find that, that the gospel has infected, like leaven, that it is, which is actually kind of an infection. It's just a one we like. It's a, but it kind of, it takes over. Has it grown into more and more aspects of our life all the time? Is our speech infected with the gospel? 
The kingdom starts tiny and spreads out, growing and growing until it has the greatest impact that people can find a home. I will tell you, I'm going to brag on, on us for a minute. A few years ago, um, some of you know Wendy Reese, who um, she runs Magdalene Home, started that ministry up. She was also a big part of, of the No Hungry Children ministry a few years ago. This is when that was going on. And, and here's what's funny. So she, the way she met me was she came and um, she's a little bit of a force of nature, if those of you who know Wendy. And so she wanted our church to help with this. And so she showed up and then showed up and showed up and showed up. And, then, and it was, it was a, yes was apparently the correct answer. And so <clears throat> as we continued to talk with her about us being involved in that, here's what she kept coming back as she would say, hey, you need to know something. I, I, so this week I was talking, um, I stopped at, at this store and I asked them if they would like to be involved. And they said they would love to be involved. And I said, well, cool. What church are you a part of? Maybe I can go talk to your church as well as about being involved. And she said, person after person after person, independent of one another, said, oh, I'm part of the South Campus of First Baptist. Oh, I'm part of the South Campus of First Baptist. Oh, I'm part of the South Campus. And every, she said it, there, there was a week or two when it seemed like everyone who wanted to be involved, who wanted to donate time and money and energy, every one of them was saying, oh, I'm a part of the South Campus of First Baptist. She, said it was, it was, she was like, what is going on down there? That all of these people are willing to, to give of their time and resources in order to see this ministry happen. I was pretty proud, I'll tell you. When we talk about the parable of the sower in a few weeks, understand this is another expression of the mission. The final verse of that says, And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. As mustard seeds, or in this case, wheat and grain, Growing and dying, by the way, you have to die to yourself in order to help other things grow. But we grow and we die and we grow and we die. And it, it continues to expand the final soil. That's what we want. The discipleship model that we're so passionate about is that each of us, each person, each member of this church is growing in discipleship so that they can then help other people grow in discipleship. It doesn't make any difference what committees you're on. It doesn't make any difference what teams you're on. It doesn't make any difference what our roles in the church. If we are not being discipled and making disciples, we are not living the Christian life. That is the only healthy way a church grows, is by being discipled and creating disciples. Every other form will eventually have not, not have enough legs under it. The church will collapse. It's, it may not be as exciting, and it's certainly not as fun sometimes to watch the discipleship model. There's no way to microwave it. There's no way to fast forward it. It is always hard, and yet it is what we are called to. That's the challenge for all of us, is to live it out the way this model is. A single stalk of mustard that then drops seeds, that become single stalks of mustard that drop seeds, and before you know it, all of a sudden, there's a tree. And then there's a playground outside the tree, and there's kids crawling all over every inch of the playground. Because there are. Pretty sure that's my son about to fall off the rim right there, the rings right there. Such a blessing. <laughs> well, that too. And there's people out there ready to catch you. There's like three people, three adults, like they know. Stay close to Michael. All right, so um, I want to pray over us that God will continue to form us this, this up. And, and as we pray here in a second, when we have our invitation time, which I talked about last week, <clears throat> I, I, if, if you need to respond however you need to respond, it can be where you are that you're thanking God for something or you know God's calling you to something or whatever, maybe that's the case. You've already talked to somebody and you're like, you know what, this is where I want to live out church. I want to be a mustard plant here. Um, we'd, we'd love for that to be the case. Um, if you've not spoken to somebody about that, let one of us know. We'll start that process, get you to know that 
you're at home here. So um, we want to pray for however you need to respond. If, that, if, that, if you've just now realized that God has already given you a 100 in the final grade category, and you want to accept that free gift, you want to mark yourself present by letting him know you accept that free gift, we would, we would love to pray that over you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good gifts. Um, thank you for what you've called us to. Thank you that we have the opportunity to live a life worthy of this calling. Thank you that we can live as citizens in your kingdom. Um, God, I pray that all of us would do that, that each of us would do that, and that when guests are here, they would discover that we're authentically proud that you've honored us with their presence because you've called them here today for whatever reason. Lord, I pray that you would continue to guide us to be authentically good friends to one another. We would speak life and truth into one another. And then when the time is right, we would leave this place to go and make disciples. That we would be prepared here and abroad to teach and to baptize as we do so. Lord, I thank you for your gifts and that you let us be involved with what you're doing. We humbly thank you, Lord. Forgive us. We are sinners and we're not worthy of anything that you have done. And yet, in the midst of the truth that we are, you have called us righteous because of your Son. Thank you that you have no, we are no longer defined by our sin, just described. We are instead defined by who you are and what you've done in us. And we thank you for this in your Son's name. Amen.